Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gill, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Great news, you can now watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. Macular degeneration is the leading cause of legal blindness in the U.S., Studies show macular degeneration is more prevalent than glaucoma and diabetic retinopathy combined. Today's guest, Chicago optometrist, Dr. Pam Lowe. Dr. Lowe lectures to physicians on new technologies for early detection of macular degeneration. Dr. Lowe has authored on many topics, including retinal disease, cataract extraction, and laser vision correction. Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Gelb. I'm so excited to be with you today to talk about a topic that we are passionate about at our practice. Yes, and I'm so passionate about macular degeneration because that's one disease that we know that we could really slow down and, and maybe even prevent. But let's get started with what is macular degeneration? Yeah, it, it's great to tease it down to what exactly we're talking about. So the macula is the part of our retina where we get our central crisp best vision or 2020 vision if we have if we have normal vision it's also one of the most metabolically rich portions of our whole body so your macula and the photoreceptors there's a high metabolism there so it's constantly producing energy and getting rid of waste waste products and that whole process takes a lot of metabolic function and macular degeneration is with time so time is one of the main risk factors that that metabolic process breaks down and it breaks down because of a buildup of what we call drusen and drusen is basically very similar to cholesterol. It is a cholesterol similar to the cholesterol that can build up in our arteries. 
So it's, 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 it affects so many folks right now, uh, over 11 million Americans have macular degeneration. It's the leading cause of vision loss for those of us 60 and older in the US and the leading cause of, of vision loss worldwide for ages 50 and older. So do you think macular degeneration is an epidemic now? You know, um, I, I believe it's an epidemic when we're talking about aging and vision. When we think of epidemic, right? We think of pandemics, we think of the myopia epidemic, where we know by 2050, 5 billion folks worldwide will have um, myopia and be at risk for that disease causing vision loss. So the numbers are certainly high. And when we look at all those things that we worry about in our aging population, our glaucoma patients, our diabetic patients, and like you said, you add up a patient with those disease conditions, a little over 2 million for glaucoma and a little over 7 million for diabetic retinopathy, it doesn't even equal what those at risk for vision loss from AMD. So it is kind of, it, it's a very bit large call to action. It's not the big numbers like myopia, but it certainly is one that every primary care practice needs to be hands-on and, and keep up to date with. There was an article in Survey of Ophthalmology back in 2010 by Denoso, and he said that macular degeneration is a systemic disease. And I think that's really fascinating because when we look in the eye, because we have such great technology, we could tell a lot about the eye and we could diagnose close to 300 systemic diseases from the eye. If you could comment about that. Yeah, um, it really is because we see the risk factors for macular degeneration, like we said, is mainly time, but cardiovascular disease and diabetics are at a higher risk. And obviously, those are diseases that affect our whole system and our vasculature system in particular. So it really is a disease that we find in most of my patients that go on to advanced macular degenerations have the comorbidity of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and especially diabetes. And as an optometrist, where do we fit in? We, we are the quarterback. So, you know, I always explain to my patients, um, you know, that topic will come up. What's the difference between optometry and ophthalmology? What are our roles? So I tell my patients, your optometrist is your quarterback. We deal with five ophthalmology colleagues that we love, our surgical colleagues that we co-manage. And we, we farm you out to those folks when you need it and we'll co-manage your care. But we're the quarterback. And the quarterback, a most successful quarterback, knows when to throw the ball and when to not throw the ball. And optometry is actually more important because we see our patients, you know, at our practice from cradle to coffin. So we know them for years and years and years. And so when I can educate them about conditions they're at risk for and then be that quarterback and not only help prevent conditions, but then have advanced technologies when they do convert, that I can keep them in house and watch them as closely as possible for better outcomes and not have to, um, you know, have them farm out to our retinal colleagues is the whole goal. One of the most interesting statistics that people don't realize is about 50% of the population will suffer from some eye disease at some point in their life. So making the eye exam, you know, it's more than just eyeglasses and checking for contacts and eyeglasses. If you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at, at the beginning, you said there's nearly 300 diseases in the whole body, many neurological diseases that we can detect in the eye. 
And so really looking at the patient as a whole, you know, we see from young to old in our practice. So we start talking about how your eyes are connected to the rest of your body. You didn't come in bringing your eyes in on a tray for me to evaluate, right? They're connected to everything. And so it's so important to maintain good general health so that the eyes and vision stay healthy for as long as the patient needs them. And hopefully that's for a very, very long time. So, So speaking to the patient more than just about vision serves two purposes in our practice. Um, it, it obviously we want the best visual outcomes for our patients, but when we're talking about the things in their body that could put them at risk for vision loss, it opens up that whole discussion for lifestyle. What do you eat and how do you move your body? And those are discussions that optometrists need to start having regularly with our patients because think of the, the um, presbyopic tsunami right now. You have the oldest millennial turned 40 last year. So that's prime presbyopic years. I bet you that many of those, we know statistically, many of those millennials have not been to see an eye doctor because if they've seen great all their life, they weren't highly hyperopic or myopic. They never saw the optometrist, but guess what? Now that they're on their computer, cell phone and tablet and they can't read anymore, whose doorstep do they show up on? And what a golden opportunity for us as primary care folks to educate them, not only about that near blur, but now that you're 40 and then 50, and then the next decade of 60, when your risk for disease increases, namely AMD, you know, we're gonna have those discussions early on because we know if we can identify and prevent disease early on, our visual outcomes are just going to be better. You know, when we, when I started practicing optometry, we would use an ophthalmoscope and I would be able to see maybe a hundred microns. And by the time we would say, let's take a, an example, we're talking about macular degeneration today. Well, macular dege- the leading causes of blindness, macular degeneration and diabetes. By the time we saw bleeding and problems, the disease, the person typically knew they had the disease. The disease was pretty far down the spectrum. But now with our new technology, we're able to see at eight microns, not a hundred microns. So we could pick up disease so early. Absolutely. Um, you know, OCTs have changed in retinal imaging have just changed the game. I graduated in the late eighties. You know, I couldn't have dreamt those things would have existed and that I'm using them every day in my practice now. So certainly we could see more, but with macular degeneration, Part of the scary part of the disease is right now, 78% of folks that are being identified as AMD patients already have vision loss. So half of them are 2050, which means that that eye's lost the ability to drive day at night and function uh, for that visual task. And the other half are 2200 or worse, legally blind or worse in one eye. You know, and so when you look at 78% already have vision loss, and then 22% are hopefully will have a better outcome. That's just not cutting it. And the way we traditionally have looked at macular degeneration was, did the patient have vision loss and did we see structure change, right? And because we talked about those waste products building up called drusen, we were waiting as the doctor to look with our either our, our imaging, our ophthalmoscopes, our BIOs, and now our OCTs. But guess what? those little cholesterol plaques don't aren't even visible on OCTs until well into the disease state. So our classic way of looking for structure changes or waiting for the patient to have vision loss just hasn't been cutting it. And 
there was actually a study that was over um, 600, about 644 patients. And they took these patients and it was MDs and ODs. And they were actually knew they were part of a study. And they were saying, we want you to tell us if this patient has macular degeneration or not. So again, as ODs and MDs, we're looking for structure and function loss. Well, guess what? 25% of the patients that were labeled as normal actually had clinical signs of macular degeneration. Um, and 30% of those 25% had intermediate. So it wasn't no AMD early, you know, it, or it, obviously not advanced, but it was intermediate where those drusen start getting larger. And these doctors knew they were part of a study and yet they were missing it with their best efforts. And MDs and ODs were missing it equally. So it's not, you know, which doctor did you see? So when you look at that, that's what tells me, do we have a better tool to pick up macular degeneration before the patient tells us there's a vision loss or before I see a structure loss? Yeah, this, it just shows that the technology in our field, in our profession is so helpful for us to help patients to diagnose disease early. And the earlier we could diagnose it, then we could intervene to decrease the risk so people don't go and become blind. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, earlier intervention, identifying, now we have a, a way to identify macular degeneration when it's subclinical. So before we see function and structure loss, we have started running dark adaptation in our practice, which picks up the disease when the retina is starting to get sick. And as doctors, for the longest time, we know macular degeneration is central vision loss. That's the end game that we want to avoid, that central vision loss. But guess what? subclinical or early macular degeneration actually affects our night vision or our rods, not our cones that are responsible for central vision, our rod function. So as the cholesterol plaques start building up at a, such a microscopic level, our OCTs can't decipher those yet, the retina is becoming sick. And it's a localized um, breakdown of the conversion of retinal A, um, I'm sorry, vitamin A that helps us dark adapt. So when we go from light to dark, uh, vitamin A is key at the retinal level to convert so that our rods can kick in and we see better in, in night vision. What happens in subclinical, that mechanism starts getting sick. And so we were looking at it all wrong. A patient could have 20-20 vision, no structure change, but starting to have problems at night. And when you look at the patients at risk for macular degeneration, what age group are they? 50 and older, and what else is happening to them 50 and older? Cataract changes, right? And so patients start talking about, oh, I may get glare, I don't see as well as night, and kind of chalk, we chalk it off as practitioners and patients to, oh, the normal aging of my eye, it's probably cataracts. Well, now we have a tool called dark adaptation testing that deciphers with over 90% sensitivity and specificity that um, so even if you have cataracts, it'll tell you, is the night are the night changes actually happening? And that's a biomarker for subclinical macular degeneration. So how awesome is it that I now have a tool that I could tell the patient, before you notice one letter loss of vision or I see structure change, guess what? That macular degeneration train has left the station and we can do something about it. Just explain how the test works. Sure. Yeah, so the test started as a desktop unit, and it was similar to um, kind of visual field testing, but you needed a very dark room. There had to be no ambient light coming into the room, and um, you test one eye at a time. 
and it actually simulates the patients in the room, it's dark, and it simulates daylight onto their retina. And then it's just measuring how long does it take the retina to adapt and start seeing again for night conditions. And if it takes you six and a half minutes or longer to dark adapt on this test, then we know that's a positive finding and that you have subclinical AMD. If you dark adapt before that, and we call that rod intercept time. So when are those rods, you know, are they healthy or are they sick? So if, if you dark adapt less than six and a half minutes, we know we can say, oh, with a lot of confidence that, you know, nothing's happened yet, but you have X, Y, and Z risk factors. So let's test you at least yearly for someone that would be high risk. What's really awesome now, and this happened right when the pandemic hit, it went from that being in a dark room with a tech um, to a headset that the patient can now wear. And it, it actually has an onboard uh, technician that speaks to the patient. So there's a tech there to set it up, but it actually talks the patient through and tells them exactly how to, you're, the patient's always staring at a same fixation point. And when they see another light flicker on, they just, they click a button. And so it became easier and how cool for during the pandemic, we didn't have to have that dedicated dark room with two people in a small space that we can now have the patient have it on their head. There could be distance and the tech can walk in and out, which is nice. They don't have to be right there on top of the patient because it has an onboard technician. So that was a game changer. Um, we love the technology when it was a desktop, but really awesome that now it became more patient and tech friendly. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that. So you talked about the RPE being sick and the deposition of cholesterol. It's amazing how when, when the body's trying to repair something, it'll bring cholesterol in, but sometimes it actually brings in too much and you, and it causes more damage. So let's talk about the causes of macular de degeneration from inflammation, which is the core component of chronic disease to oxidative stress. So talk about the cause. Yeah. So, you know, again, the, the risk factors are time is the main risk factor. Females tend to get macular degeneration at a greater rate than males. Um, if you have cardiovascular disease, again, the body's sick and then there's inflammation or, or plaque buildups, cholesterol buildups in the body. Um, diabetics. Again, we know diabetics are poor healers. So again, there's that oxidation process. They're not good oxidizers, right? Um, or, or things are, they're, they're, they're good oxidizing. This is not, we, we like antioxidizing. You know, oxidizing is the aging or rusting of cells. I, that's how I tell patients, it's your body aging or rusting. Inflammation is important when you get cut, right? You need an inflammatory response to clot and to help that area heal. But inflammation in your macula, too much of it is not good. And that's where you get a disruption. Um, so there's two forms of macular degeneration that are the, a part of the degenerative process. There's dry and what we've heard of wet. Both can lead to advanced vision loss. 90% of patients are dry. And dry is a more slow, um, it's more, dry is going to be more where the, the um, receptors lock, are, you get receptor loss. So you get thinning in that macular area, you're losing your photoreceptors, hence the vision goes down. Dry can convert to wet at any time. Wet is where you get more of that inflammatory process because new blood vessels are growing. It's called a neovascular membrane, and that's the wet part of it. And then that complicates the whole process. 10% of patients go on, so 90% are dry. You always start as dry. You don't go, oh, I got diagnosed with wet AMD, and I never even knew I had AMD before. Now, that may happen. They didn't know they had dry, 
but dry is where it always begins. So it's that waste product buildup, that breakdown of the metabolism in that central macula that leads the whole process. Now, dry, we don't have any uh, cure for yet, but when those 10% do convert, that's when we love our retinal colleagues that give advanced treatments, mainly with anti-VEGF injections. And those are injections to help shrink those blood vessels, shrink the membranes, and hopefully recover vision. Excellent. And let's talk about genetics a little bit. You know, in, in, the, eight, in the 1880 and before, there was basically no macular degeneration, and there was almost no cardiovascular disease or cancer. And my good friend, Dr. Chris Kenobi, who's an ophthalmologist, has studied this a lot, and I've done a podcast with him in the, in the past. Uh, so why all of a sudden are we getting macular degeneration? So that brings us to the concept of epigenetics. So if people are predisposed to it, but it's because of their environment, because of the lifestyle factors. If you could talk a little bit about the genetic component and why some, you know, you know, hair color, uh, of course, not with me, but <laughs> hair color is, is a well, heavy- We can always guess what your hair color is. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or was. <laughs> and uh, you want to take a guess? I'm sure it was a beautiful, like light brown. Blonde. Well, that was Blonde. Good. Oh, okay. Nice. I had wavy hair. Wave goodbye. <laughs> love it. Both of my brothers are have your same uh, same condition, and I love them dearly. So I love you as well. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, with with genetics and epigenetics, explain the concept. How by using the concept of epigenetics, we could delay our risk and maybe prevent it. Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up because I really think this is the path we're going on. First of all, all medicine is getting personalized, right? Um, I know I went three years ago for a physical and they asked me to be part of a color study. Can we take more of your blood and see what your risks for going on to get cancers are? And then not only that, but like what medicines that your body, if you did go on to get a condition, what medicines does your genetic makeup mandate that would be better for you? as opposed to others. So I thought that was really cool. And we just see genetics playing a role in all conditions, but macular degeneration, 71% of the reason we get macular degeneration is because our genetic role of the dice. Um, that's huge, right? Because when you look at other conditions, cardiovascular disease, we worry about that a ton. That's like 54%. Being uh, diabetic and being um, overweight, that's like in the 25% range. And we worry about those conditions because they can cause so a myriad of other conditions in our body. But when 71%, over 70% of a condition is due to genetics, as a practitioner, I kind of want to have that information, right? Um, so that's key. And so what's really cool, what we look for in the genetic testing we do in our office, it's super easy, um, just like the 23andMe and the Ancestry that you know are so popular now, very easy to take take samples, but this is keying in just on macular degeneration. And there's 16 what we call SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism. So just think, um, I love to tell patients, 16 little parts of our, uh, our genes that we look at closely that put us at risk. We either have no risk for macular de degeneration, one or two of these inherited factors. And that lets us know what our genetic roll of the dice is. So. What's awesome about that is 
patients who may be young, 40, 50, but they had an aunt or a parent with macular degeneration. And again, they're showing no structure or function loss. How awesome is it I know now, did they get that genetic roll of the dice? So just think you have two parents and they have each have a neutral risk and a high risk for AMD. They have a child and what does that look like? Well, the child can get, had inherited the neutral risk from both parents, 25% will. So they could breathe with a sigh of relief that even though they have AMD in their family, they didn't get those genes. 25% of the time they can inherit the risk factor, the high risk for it. And then we definitely want to know that, right? Because we know we have to slow that down by the means uh, that we have available now. But in 50% we'll get, you know, the mixed, just, you know, a neutral and a, a higher risk. But those are, that's important to know. It's important for me to know the bucket they fall into so I can manage them in a more timely fashion and have those discussions I need to have with them about how awesome is it your genetic risk is low, but let's still have a healthy lifestyle, do X, Y, and Z. How awesome is it we know your risk is higher and we have ways with diet, nutraceuticals um, to monitor you more closely, implement those and watch you more closely. I mean, it's great. I mean, so this could tell us whether or not somebody's at risk for getting macular degeneration, but because of epigenetics, there are lifestyle factors that we could, we could tell patients and explain to them and prescribe to them to decrease their risk significantly. And yes, we're going to get into that. And we're yeah, going to get so into that, the, the, the different treatments and prevention, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to say, so you're absolutely right. 71% of that risk is your genes, but do you smoke? Are you overweight? Are you diabetic? Do you not move your body like you should? You put all of those in, the big one is the, the genes, but now, hey, let's control what we can control that almost 30%. And that's what the role of the primary care optometrist is all about. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. The All Eyes Visual All VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Rub your eyes often? Blurry or double vision driving at night? Red light, stop. You may have keratoconus, a progressive eye disease which can cause vision loss. Visit couldidbkc.com to take the quiz. If you rub your eyes and are experiencing changes to your vision, this may be a symptom of keratoconus, a progressive eye disease that may lead to significant vision loss. Early diagnosis is important, so don't ignore the simple act of rubbing your eyes. Please visit livingwithkc.com. You know, you brought up smoking, and I think it was in two it's about 2005, about 21% of the population smoked. And in 2020, it's down to about 12% of the population. So it's definitely going down. But smoking, uh, there was a study that showed if a doctor says to a patient, stop smoking, 10% will stop, but 90% won't. So if you could talk a little bit about smoking and macular degeneration. Absolutely. So when you smoke, it can increase your risk fivefold of getting macular degeneration. So we know it's the number one modifiable risk factor for AMD and obviously for other conditions in our body. And so to your point, every doctor or patient sees 
asked if they smoke, oh, you should quit smoking. And you know, that we, a smoker will take it with a grain of salt. I find when I link it to their vision, now they know, well, you got, you know, I've had patients, well, you got to die of something and mine's probably going to be lung cancer, right? <laughs> but do you want to suffer with lung cancer and not be able to see as well? You know, you know, it's all about your quality of life. So I find that it helps patients. It triggers them a little bit more. But one of the studies, uh, the Latino study, what was surprising is um, 56% of patients, it was right around that in that study, who had macular degeneration didn't even know that that was a risk factor. So shame on us for not telling them. And um, and it was up to 90%, like either didn't want to quit or said they weren't told they should quit. So yeah, it's 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 definitely something I think in the in our minds as practitioners, we're like, oh, they've heard that story. Yeah, they know to quit smoking. But it really is the primary care optometrist role to say, hey, no, this is why you've been told that forever, but you're being told it by me and it's gonna really change your, your um, you know, outcome later. So let's really get some hands-on ways to do that. And, and, and to your point, what's great now is that reason we see that number coming down. I have a longtime friend from college in my Loyola University days. Um, she's just a year of being smoke-free and she smoked since she's 16 years old and she's 62 wow. now. And she is so proud of herself. We're all so proud of her, but she did it with an app. And this app kept, you know, feeding her, giving her feedback, saying, yeah, you're doing great. You saved this amount of money. You know, you saved, you added this amount of time to your life because of that risk um, of what smoking does to your whole body. So I think, I think there's ex more exciting ways now than just wear a patch or chew some gum <laughs> or go cold turkey, right? We have options now for patients, which helps them. And I want to get into the risk factors because that's so important. But before we do it, let's talk a bit about some of the signs and, and symptoms of macular degeneration. So we talked a little bit about drusen. And just give us a little more detail what drusen is made of, what it looks like. And if you could go into the class of the Beckman classification of drusen, because I think it's important, you know, for the for the doctor to even explain to the patient because we kind of know where we are and what the risks are for someone losing their vision. Absolutely. So um, cholesterol plaques start at very, very small microscopic. And we said they build up along the RPD and we don't see them as a druse or drusen until they accumulate to a high amount. And that's when our OCTs or, or our visual exams will pick it up. So again, that process can be, you know, it's building up for up to three years is what the dark adaptation studies were showing us, the all-star study. Um, that was amazing because they took patients with no clinical signs of AMD, but 24% um, tested positive for dark adaptation and three years later, they went on to convert um, to, to, mac to structural signs. So again, it's a slow process. So I like to tell patients, um, what I see looks great, but think of an iceberg. I have to look below the surface because there's things that have been happening and I'm not going to see it till it's that tip of the iceberg. And so the Beckman class is you have no AMD if there, if you see drusen, but it's so minute and tiny and there's no RPE changes, that's classified as no AMD. If they start getting a little larger, like around 25 microns where we could start picking them up, that's going to be... Um, um, kind of um, early AMD. Now, the thing with no AMD and early AMD and the Beckman classification is patients see great. They don't even know anything's happening. 
Intermediate is when those start getting larger, over 100 microns and larger, or you get more drusen. They're smaller, but you're accumulating more. That's intermediate. And guess what? That's what AREDS was a great study long time ago, and that's the folks that were being studied. That's when they may start getting symptoms and they're starting to get vision loss. And so that's the gap. Like we're, we're catching those folks intermediate already because they're starting to be symptomatic or the drusen's larger and we can see it. And then of course advanced in the Beckman class would be the geographic, the punched out cookie cutter look to the macula or wet going on the neovascular membrane. So those have been the classic stages, no AMD, early, intermediate and advanced. Now, I, you know, the new Beckman class in my mind is we go from no AMD to subclinical AMD. So we have now that extra class in there because now before their structure or function loss, I know, again, I like to tell my patients that macular degeneration train is leaving the station and it's our job to slow it down. And so that's what's so key is now we can intervent before they have function or structure loss. And so I, I look at that whole system differently. It's not a hunt for drusen anymore, a hunt to wait till I see structure. Now it's like, I know X, Y, and Z risk factors. Um, you've noticed changes or at night, you may not have noticed changes at night, but you're, you might have a family history or something else. I see you're diabetic, you have cardiovascular disease. Let's run this dark adaptation test on you. And it has, it's been a game changer in early uh, detection. You know, and I think it's a really good point because when the AREDS uh, study first came out, you know, if it was stage one under 63 microns, uh, but there was some drusion, they would say no treatment. And it really was because the, the study wasn't powered enough. And it was uh, it was a short time, I think it was like five years. So none of those people be, had macular degeneration. What's going to happen 15, 20 years from with those patients? And now, like you said, preclinical. So we're going to talk about treatment, but from a philosophical point of view, I think the earliest you, you know, I, you know, sometimes you, this, the philosophical uh, issues and studies change and philosophies change. And at one time we wouldn't treat those people. And now we know, yeah, it's probably a good idea to, to treat them with lifestyle and supplements and for people to be aware, at least to give them the option that, you know, you have preclinical changes or which we could find from dark adaptation, or you have some early drusen. And if it was my eye, and it, certainly if there's a family history, you know, you want to, uh, you, you don't want to wait to as 125 microns of a drusen before you start intervening. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the other uh, clinical signs and symptoms. How about pigmentary changes in macular degeneration? Right, so you can start seeing changes in the um, RPE, um, you know, that modeling, um, that could start happening over and above the just drusen changes. So those are important to look for as well. Um, those again on ophthalmic scope, ophthalmoscopic examination are pretty evident. And then now we have our OCTs. You know, a lot of offices have OCTA now to just start checking blood flow um, to the macula. So that's another nice tool that we have. Um, you know, someone that's high risk in our practice, we're doing, of course, dark adaptation regularly, but we measure um, macular pigment optical density as well, or MPOD. You know, we know that the two carotenoids um, that um, protect the eye are lutein and zeaxanthin. And their um, zeaxanthin is very rich in the center of the macula, the fovea, 
and lutein is very rich in the parafoveal area. Both are super important. And now we have a tool to measure that. We measure that on any new patient that's 18 and older in our practice, because to your point, early intervention is key. So why wouldn't I have that discussion if you don't have high MPOD, which we want your MPOD to be 50% or higher, your macular pigment, because then we know that's protective. And a third of Americans will have low MPOD um, and young, healthy people. Um, and when we look at young, healthy people growing up with cell phone, tablets, and computers and what you know that may put them at risk for, and that lutein and zeaxanthin in your macula are protective, you know, that's an important discussion that we could have early on because that plays a huge role in the treatment for subclinical and early AMD. You know, I'm hoping that soon we're going to have an objective measure to be able to objectively measure lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin, the macular pigment of the eye. Right now, it's a, a subjective measurement. And, you know, there is an OCT device that's used in Europe which is very the spectralis, as you know, which could measure objectively uh, macular pigment. And I'm just hoping at some point, it's gonna be something that will come down a lot in price and we'll be able to do an objective measurement because you know, not only is the macular pigment in the eye, uh, the carotenoids in the eye, but lutein is in the brain. Absolutely. Same with and, lycopene. And, and, yeah, and, and to your point, um, some studies have shown um, that cognition is so key for with lutein and zeaxanthin. In fact, um, Stringham had done a study um, with cognition in kids, and the kids that had a higher level of lutein and zeaxanthin that was bioavailable actually scored better on standardized tests. Um, so that was interesting. Again, small study, we need to do more of those studies. But to your point, lutein is so important in brain function. And you know the eye is a direct, um, you know, uh, a direct flow from the brain with our optic nerve coming right down, and we can see all that neural tissue. Um, and you know diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, dementia. Um, you know we're seeing studies that show that plays a higher and higher role for cognitive function. Yeah, I mean, at some point we may be the first doctors that are going to diagnose Alzheimer's disease because of OCT. Absolutely, OCT, and there are some studies showing that. That we may be able to correlate the um, pigment measurements in your macula could correlate to your, the amount in the brain as well. There might be a, a direct correlation with those. So again, um, areas of great interest in the study, but how awesome is that? That it gives us a, a snapshot into that world and what our patients are at risk for with, in the brain. So let's talk a little bit more about risk factors because we want to manage those risk factors to decrease our risk of getting this blinding disease. So we talked about AIDS, we talked about smoking, we talked about genetics. Let's talk about cardiovascular disease and let's start with cardiovascular disease. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have cardiovascular disease does not mean you're going to get macular degeneration, but there's a strong association um, between cardiovascular disease and macular degeneration because of the cholesterol buildup. And that's what happens in a lot of cardiovascular disease patients. They're getting the buildups in their arteries um, that can lead to, um, you know, obviously um, um, narrowing of the arteries, but those plaques can break off, puts them at risk for stroke. And so we see a high correlation between those folks. Uh, folks who have cardiovascular disease usually have cholesterol issues, right? They have high cholesterol, their good cholesterol, the HDL is low, and their bad cholesterol, the LDL is high. 
And we've seen in studies that the, if you have a high amount of good cholesterol, the HDL, that decreases your risk for going on to more advanced macular degeneration. If you have cardiovascular disease, that increases your risk. We see that um, for, for going on to vision loss with macular degeneration. So the two, uh, if you have macular degeneration, it doesn't necessarily mean you have cardiovascular disease. And if you have cardiovascular disease, it doesn't mean you'll get macular degeneration. But if I have a patient with I, with, I know is, has cardiovascular disease, you bet I'm gonna tell them their risk factors and look for macular degeneration at a higher rate than if they did not. And vice, vice versa, my patients may say, oh, I'm fine, but I see signs of AMD. I say, you know what, we need to make sure you're getting a thorough cardiovascular workup as well. You know, I think it's interesting with HDL, if your HDL is high, you have a lower risk of macular degeneration because the function of HDL is to carry uh, cholesterol back to the liver to be recycled. So, uh, and then we know that we get a lot of cholesterol when we have damaged tissue, the body actually makes it. So here we have a, a protective mechanism where the HDL comes in and tries to suck it up and bring it back to the liver. So that's why high HDL is associated with low macular degeneration. So it kind of makes sense. Right, right. And actually, so, and, and that's a great point, Dr. Gelb, because you look at the treatments that they're trying um, you know, there's a lot of things in the pipeline for dry. We said there's no treatment yet, but it is like, can we flush out cholesterol from the retina? You know, those are one of the treatments, you know, forms they're looking at. So, yeah, so, and, and it, your HDLs naturally do that. Um, so uh, I worry every time I go to the doctor, my whole number kind of creeps up with my cholesterol. I'm crazy at going every year and making sure I'm, I'm getting all those tests. And then she always tells me, don't worry, because my my good, my HDL keeps getting higher and higher. So the ratio, she's like, I am not worried that the number is higher of the total. I, I think it's great that your ratio is in great balance. So let's talk about my one of my favorite topics, metabolic syndrome and diabetes. How is that related to macular degeneration? Yeah, so metabolic disease, you know, that's when you have hypertension and then especially the other risk factor of truncal fat you know, that we, we have this truncal fat. And so that, again, is putting you at higher risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke. And so when you have metabolic syndrome, again, you're just at risk for all those things that can contribute to the macula aging. Hypertension in of itself, right? I, you know, we're, we're crazy taking blood pressure on all our, our folks 18 and older because so many people walk around not knowing that they have hypertension. And again, that's putting everyone at risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke. So, you know, they're all linked when we look, that's why we say, you know, to your point, macular degeneration is a systemic disease because it's all kind of intertwined together. And how about obesity? Yeah, so the thing with obesity, again, we know that puts you at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, what's interesting about obesity too, and it's not the morbidly obese, there was a study that came out that even though you are intaking lutein and zeaxanthin either in your diet or with supplements, it can get stuck in your adipose. So if you have, if you're obese and you have more fat tissue, um, the bio-uptake is less of the lutein and zeaxanthin, it stays in the fat cells. So it, it decreases the bio-uptake. So even though you might be supplementing your obesity is just your body is not able to get that lutein and zeaxanthin to where it needs to go. Before we talked a little bit about genetics, 
Now, when you do genetic testing, uh, if it's ARMS2 or complement factor H that comes out abnormal, do you relate that with difference, not using zinc or using zinc? You know, that's been somewhat of a controversial topic in, in eye care, especially in ophthalmology. And I was wondering how, how you feel about that. Yeah, so that's a great point. Zinc is such an essential um, element that's needed in our body for immunity, um, you know, for anti-inflammatory properties. Um, but so the controversy comes in when they looked at retrospectively the genetic makeup of those folks that were part of the ARED study. There was a small group that had a certain genetic makeup that they actually with supplementation of this, it looked like when they tease it out that if they were taking zinc, there was about 15% of those folks that went on to not get the benefit of the supplement. So the theory there is that if they have, they're in that 15% group that has the certain uh, genetic makeup that you, you should supplement them but without zinc. Um, there's another camp that says, no, you were looking at it all wrong. It's not statistically significant. Zinc is an important element. Um, I tend to be in the camp. I look at the patient as a whole. So um, if they're getting a well-balanced diet, they're getting the zinc they need. I don't want to add more to that. If there's a chance in my mind <laughs> that it may be detrimental, we talk about what you're eating and I'd rather they get it through that and I will take a, the zinc out of their supplement. That's, and, and again, it, it could go either way. I think the important point, Dr. Gelb, is that you're treating them with a nutraceutical <laughs> in the first. I'm glad it's a controversy because, um, you know, the important thing is that you're using nutraceuticals, not only for intermediate, but earlier on. And so, again, when I do know the genetic role of the dice and I've looked at it both ways, I'm just kind of in that nosing camp right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I certainly love having those discussions with with. Uh, with my, with um, colleagues and I'm very open. So, you know, that's what's great about science, right? We keep doing studies and hopefully we'll learn more. And I think one of the great points that you've brought up in the past is that if you're obese, you have a 32% increased risk of getting macular degeneration. And I, I think that's very important for the people listening to this because 32% is pretty significant. It's, it's very significant. And then you throw in, again, are you a smoker or have a history of smoking? What is your genetic role of the dice? I mean, that's it, that that is huge. So, you know, um, obesity, it, it's really interesting because when you look at just what our nutrition was like in the early 1900s compared to now, you know, over 100 years later, um, how the American diet has changed, which lends itself to why obesity is increasing, increasing in childhood obesity scary, right? I mean, the, I contribute that to not only changes in diet, but lack of moving. So when I was a kid, we walked to school in the morning, we walked home for lunch, and we walked back to school. So we were actually walking for, you know, your most, you know, four times during the day when I was in grade school. Um, and about back then, I think it was about close to 35% of kids walk to school. Now, it's less than 10% of kids walk to school. I mean, just that one thing. And then what do they cut in school programs when they need to budget? They cut the arts and PE, <laughs> you know? Um, like that's the thing we cut. You, then we have them in on their Chromebooks all day long. So it's the lack of movement, the things they're not eating that are, you know, their diet that has changed over time. You know, I, I was a band nerd in high school. 
So I love telling my patients the story. Um, you know, we were in band contests in marching band. So we would be on bus trips all over the place, right? So where do you stop? You stop at McDonald's when you have a group of, you know, 100 plus kids. And back then, I would get a quarter pounder with cheese, which I love, <laughs> and a small root beer and a small fry. It was very satisfying. You know, back then it was very tasty, but everything was proportioned. <laughs> now you go to McDonald's, it's like the quarter pounder, like they make you supersize it up, right? It's the quality of the meat's different to me, but then the fries are this big, the beverage is as big as my head. Like there's not a small option <laughs> anymore. And it's crazy. Like, and that's the standard. So just that little example alone, and you know, I ate that all through high school. And so I, I say now it's lucky I don't have cardiovascular disease, but it was a different quality of the product in the proportion, the, the, the portion size was different. And so that's what's changed in the US <laughs> um, is our portions and what's in the portion. Um, so yeah, the Americans, our diet is the sad diet, the standard American diet. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Rub your eyes often? Blurry or double vision driving at night? Red light, stop. You may have keratoconus, a progressive eye disease which can cause vision loss. Visit couldidbkc.com to take the quiz. If you rub your eyes and are experiencing changes to your vision, this may be a symptom of keratoconus a progressive eye disease that may lead to significant vision loss. Early diagnosis is important, so don't ignore the simple act of rubbing your eyes. Please visit livingwithkc.com. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEBroadcasting.com and sign up today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.